what's up? The semester is officially done, at least class-wise. Just finishing up with some assessment and one-on-one student meetings, and I'm done. Not to brag, but I limped across that finish line a couple <laughs> weeks ago. Yeah, you all ended a lot earlier than we did, but we started super late. Yeah, we always we're always off a little bit like that. I'm still cleaning up the mess of, oh my god, I forgot to finish the final exam, kind of stuff. <laughs> well, everything I did, everything online, so people yeah. are like, and I left it open for a whole week. They had from Monday through Friday at two to do it. So they started it at Friday at like six. And then they were like, oh my God, I didn't read the fine print. I don't have any stragglers with final assignments for my semester. This was a really good class. Anyway, so we're bringing Elizabeth Cho onto the show today. And she is a graduate student in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Missouri, better known as Mizzou. And she works with the absolutely fabulous and wonderful Dr. Libby Cogill, who is a good friend and colleague of mine. And so that's always nice. But I didn't actually know Elizabeth. I don't think I've actually formally met her, or if I have, I have a horrible memory. But it was actually Alex, my grad student, who texted me and said, you need to get Elizabeth on the show because they were in the same session together for the AABAs now. And Alex said that Elizabeth is absolutely amazing. And also we have like a really awesome point of proof because her presentation at the AABAs, which was titled The Influence of Climate and Population Structure on East Asian Skeletal Morphology, won the Mildred Trotter Prize for Excellent Presentation on Bones or Teeth. Yeah, so you sort of slipped that in there, but you know, I know this is an HBA podcast, but we are also members of the AABA. So why don't we say kudos for the AABA for the 17-year process of finally switching over from the AAPA and say what that means to people who are not members of the AABA. Yeah, I was about to say, so we were originally known as the American Association of Physical Anthropologists, and we are trying to confront our pretty rough history in anthropology head on, and we have now officially voted to change our name to the American Association of Biological anthropologists. 70 years after (laughs) Sherry Washburn suggested that we use evolution instead of the description of physical features as the basis for our discipline, Elizabeth's work is highly, highly descriptive, but then adds the evolutionary test onto it. And looking through her presentation, because I didn't get to see it, first I was walking through there going like, oh my God, this is so much description. I can't make Mm. sense of it. But her evolutionary tests were very clear. Yeah. So she does a great job on what she sent us in that combination. So as well as integrating the whole body, because as she even talks about in her introduction of her presentation that, you know, as anthropologists and especially those who focus on anatomy and anatomy of no longer living individuals, people tend to focus on certain body parts. So like only the head or only the arm or only the leg. And she's really trying that integrative whole body approach to trying to understand folks. I want to know how she did all that in 15 minutes. (laughs) Well, let's bring her on and she can tell us. Welcome to the Sausage of Science. And thank you so much for taking some time out to chat with us today. Yeah, well, thank you for inviting me. I'm super happy to be here. I talked about it in the intro, but it was my graduate student who recommended you because you two were in the same session together. And she's like, Elizabeth is amazing. You need to talk to Elizabeth and you need to get her on the show, which was then even more confirmed by the fact that you won the uh, Margaret Trotter Prize this year at the AABAs. Congrats. 
Yeah, thank you so much. It was a big surprise. I am overwhelmed and very happy at the same time. We just spent the five minutes uh, boggling our minds over uh, the synchronicity or the coincidence of AAPA going from AABA. You seem to embody the switch, right? Your work is highly descriptive, but you're testing an evolutionary model. And then we also bugged out on the fact that you managed to present all that in 15 minutes. So we're going to come back to that in just a second. But let's start with you. Tell us about yourself. We like to know how the, the scientist is made. So we'd love to hear about your background, what brought you into anthropology and, and all that good stuff. Sure. I'd have to say my journey has been a little bit roundabout, not a very direct path moving into anthropology. As a high school student, I was really interested in facial reconstruction. So the types of things you would see for trying to identify individuals of cold cases or um, historical figures in museums. And I tried to kind of test out that interest by working with my local police department on developing a facial compositing program that they could use in the field. And that seemed to work out and seemed promising as a good like professional direction. And so I enrolled in a forensic biology program at the Ohio Northern University. And I enjoyed my time there. It's one of the few places that you can go in Ohio where they actually have a forensic biology major versus like a forensic concentration. So moving forward through the years, enjoyed the classes, the modules were fun, but I didn't really find kind of my fit in the forensic program quite yet until I reached junior year when we had this really short module on forensic anthropology. And from day one, <laughs> it just kind of like blew my mind was super exciting every single day, learning about all of the different things that you can find out about an individual from their skeleton, from their height, their activity patterns, different types of stress throughout their lifetime. And so I was really fortunate in that my advisor as an undergraduate was very supportive of all of his students' interests and kind of going above and beyond <laughs> for all of his students in terms of really applying all of these things uh, in the different fields. And so he organized a field trip for us to go to the Heyman Todd collection. And we got to spend an entire day just kind of looking around the collection, seeing all these different evidence of pathology, trauma. That for me was just like, okay, this is kind of the direction I want to go now. I'm going to really focus on forensic anthropology. What can I do next? And once again, Dr. DeLuca came through. <laughs> he had a connection at JPAC, the Joint POW MIA Accounting Command, for an internship program. And so I applied, I was accepted, and so I spent the summer of my senior year being an intern, learning about different types of forensic casework at the lab, as well as doing some very beginner's level research. And that really solidified but I definitely wanted to go into anthropology. I wanted to work with skeletons. And so I applied to the master's program at the University of Central Florida and been with anthropology ever since. So, so you're, oh, uh -oh. <laughs> we're gonna duel now. Well, I wanna know what <laughs> biology is. I've, I've never heard of it. It's basically all of the different forensic-y type fields you can think of. So forensic toxicology, entomology, botany, if you look at physical methods, pretty much we had a course on everything, all sorts of DNA testing, lab courses. I graduated with a degree in forensic biology, but I also ended up earning minors in chemistry and biochemistry along the way. 
Well, that's really cool and really useful. And I also find it amazing. So back when I was at the University of Albany, we would get so many students wanting to do forensic anthropology, specifically because of the show Bones. They were so much more aware of the bone and anthropology side and not aware at all about a lot of the other parts of forensic biology like you described, but you seem to be the exact opposite, which is amazing. Yeah, I think Bones came out after it actually started in my undergraduate program. And for us, the big problem was CSI and that individuals would watch CSI. They wanted to solve the crimes. They wanted to carry a gun. And so freshman year was just super hard on like half the group when they realized that they don't give you a gun, you just go to the crime scene, like you aren't doing anything super duper exciting, life threatening or anything like that. So that half of the group then transitioned to criminal justice with more of a focus on becoming future law enforcement. And then us labby individuals were left over. I love it because it's always interesting the way you see that popular media influences career choices and then how when students actually get exposed to the coursework involved in those career choices, how things change completely and utterly. Oh, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a really, really awesome background. That makes, I guess, another interesting leap in what you do. And so you started with this forensic background and then moved towards forensic anthropology. And now you have kind of shifted to some degree and, and looking at anthropology in a deeper sense of time about evolutionary forces that shape the observable variation that we can pick up in skeletal populations. So tell us about that transition and what led you to Libby at Mizzou. It all just boils down to like, I love human diversity overall. And just coming from it originally from the forensic background, you know, you don't really have a lot of the theoretical basis, the evolutionary basis as to why particular traits are present in one population or another. So I really was focused on just in general ancestry assessment, like, oh, it's really cool that certain traits are more prevalent in one population or the other just based on geography. And these can be useful in identifying particular remains. But then after you kind of spend some time learning about the methods and like, okay, these are useful, but like, why do they exist? What's the point of them? Like, are they helpful? Are they just kind of, you know, neutral things just hanging out there that have really no benefit or harm to that particular population? So I really wanted to delve more into explaining why these traits exist, why they have started to occur in particular populations and focus more on the biological or evolutionary part of it versus the forensic applications of particular traits. The American Association for Physical Anthropology, of course, is founded on describing physical differences among sort of clients or geographic groups. And this has sort of contributed or been part of our history as a racist discipline, something that for the last 50 years we've been trying to change. And just this year, we finally switched over from physical to biological anthropology. And and I see your work as reflecting the synergy that Sherry Washburn proposed, you know, over 50 years ago. You're looking at what is primarily a one of those populations that used to be highly racialized, but you're looking at it from a climate position and and testing some evolutionary models. I wonder if you could sort of unpack what set you on the path you're on and how you chose the population or the set of bones that you chose to analyze and, and just Give us a little bit of the ingredients that have gone into the sausage of your science, if you don't mind. Sure. Like anything, it's all about the opportunities that are put forward to you. And so for me, just academically and professionally, travel keeps taking me to Asia. And so each time I go, I kind of fall in love just a little bit more with each location. 
And I've been really fortunate that every place I go, I tend to make new friends there, which makes me of course wanna go back. And this started pretty early on, like in my academic career, like starting in undergrad at Ohio Northern University, my roommate was actually an international student from Korea. And she brought to my attention this summer exchange program with Hanyang University. And that just happened to be the university that her father worked at. And so she really encouraged me to apply because one, it's a great experience, but two, like I would get a chance to meet her family. She could show me around, like, so it'd be fun as well versus academic. <laughs> and so I applied, I was really fortunate. I got selected, I got to go. So I spent pretty much a month and a half taking Korean language courses, Korean history and culture courses, exploring Seoul. And then at the end of all of it, we had a one week trip to China. We got to visit Xi'an, got to see the Terracotta Warriors, check out the Great Wall. So all of that left a really positive impression overall. And then moving forward to doing this sort of internship my senior year at JPAC, I ran into Dr. Jenny Jin, who had just started working on a Korean War remains project. And so from talking with her, I learned about some interesting Korean skeletal collections that actually became quite useful because I then traveled there to gather data for my master's thesis. And so moving forward, after finishing the master's and everything, I had three years of professional work where I went back to JPAC as an ORISE anthropologist. I worked on the Korean War project. So I not only got to learn more about the troop movements during the war, as well as like some of the geography that came into play in some of these battles, but it gave me an opportunity to do additional research in Japan to kind of supplement all of the data I'd collected for my master's. And prior to leaving for my dissertation program, I actually got to go to Vietnam as part of a joint recovery operation. So like each of these <laughs> academic as well as professional trips introduced me to a new part of Asia. I got to meet different people, experience new cultures, new food. And so just kind of kept building this love. So I guess why not keep doing something if you really love it and you can get somebody to like let you travel to those locations. That is a really rich variety of experiences that's given you a really great breadth and depth of knowledge in different areas for you to bring it kind of all together. I wasn't aware of any of this before <laughs> bringing me, you know, inviting you onto the show. And so it's really wonderful to hear. And so you're finishing up, correct? Like you're really close to defending and being done with Yeah, so I've completed all of my coursework. I'm ABD, so just need to complete the dissertation <laughs> and then eventually graduate. Yes, so the hope is to graduate by the end of this year. Okay, all right, so close. So it's good that we're getting yeah. you on the show now. It'll be some, you know, a good plug for you. <laughs> and so the work that you presented for the AABAs, tell us a little bit about those skeletal populations. What time frame are we looking at? And kind of what was the goal of this work? Because you cover a lot of ground in this very short period of time for a presentation. Yeah, so it's a lot to pack into a very short period of time. I, in total, have 10 skeletal populations I ended up analyzing. And really, the choice of skeletal populations was mainly built around the attempt to be as comprehensive as possible in representing the entire region. And so prior to doing any data collection or any grant writing or anything like that, I basically scoured all of the publications I could find that have anything remotely related to 
Asian skeletal remains. So any articles, dissertations, books, whatever I could get a hold of. Every time I went to a conference, if I heard someone have a talk or had some sort of poster dealing with remains in Asia, I'd go and chat with them, see, you know, like what collections did you visit? What was your experience? Do you have good contact information? And then basically just compiled a really comprehensive list from all of my efforts and then contacted everyone I could. And I was lucky in that pretty much everyone I contacted approved me to come over, visit, research, and build this big data set. And so pretty much the samples I ended up with are everything that I was aware of in the region that was available for analysis. So I ended up getting representation of individuals in Mongolia. I have three different populations that represent different environments in China. So I have a northeastern population right above North Korea, a northwestern population that's along the Tibetan plateau, and then a southern Chinese population that's right above Hong Kong. I have Korean collections that were representative of the area around Seoul, and then two populations that I use to represent variation in Japan. I have representation of Aboriginal individuals in Taiwan, as well as two different environments in Thailand. So one for Northern Thailand, as well as Eastern Thailand, and then one population to represent the Philippines. And just due to the nature of these particular collections, it's a combination of archeological as well as very recent remains. And so the remains from the Philippines, Thailand, Japan, and the Hong Kong area are going to be relatively recent because these are going to be body donations or recent cemetery collections or uh, anatomical specimens that have been used for teaching purposes. Everything else that's from Mongolia or China or Korea or Taiwan, these are much older remains. And so the earliest remains we're looking at several hundred years uh, BC, whereas the more recent archaeological remains we're looking at around the 17th century or so. So there is quite a span, not only of geography, as well as time for these samples. That's pretty amazing. So did you travel? And I ask this because I'm in COVID and post-COVID, I'm struggling to help students find skeletal populations they can use, NAGPRA issues, travel issues. So I'm sort of curious as to what that looked like. Did you travel to visit them? Were they online? Did people provide you their data sets? How did that work for you? Oh, I definitely traveled. <laughs> I spent 14 months traveling all over Asia. I basically left in October of 2018, and I did not get back home until Thanksgiving Day of 2019. And so I was really fortunate that I traveled when I did because none of this research would be possible right now. But basically, I would spend as few as maybe about three weeks or so in one location to a max of about two months at one location, depending on the size of the collection and the amount of populations that were stored at that particular location. And once I had completed all my research in one location, I basically gave myself one or two days for travel and then moved to the next location. So I tried to have travel over the weekend. So I had maybe that one day of buffer in case like the flight got delayed or canceled, but pretty much was constantly moving from one country or one city to another for that span of 14 months. So like you barely got all of that in, but you know, COVID was hitting China at the time. And so you were real close to actually exposure, I guess, early on. Yeah, I left China at the end of October. 
And so I was <laughs> right up in the northern part of China uh, in Changchun, which is then going to take me through Beijing because I was flying into Thailand. And so that was an interesting flight looking back on it, just because I spent a decent amount of time in the airport. I mean, the flight was fine. The airport experience was fine. Like everything was fine about the trip in and of itself. And obviously nothing happened, but mm -hmm. just looking back on it, I'm like, wow, the timeline on that was pretty close. It was fortuitous that this trip all worked out within this yeah. particular time span. <laughs> and also, I mean, given all this travel, what were your funding sources? Who funded you for this? I received funding from the National Science Foundation as well as Wintergren. And so this was, yeah, <laughs> that's great. I mean, I am ecstatic to have gotten funding from at least one organization, but to get it from two was just a godsend really because it made the whole experience so much easier because I didn't have to prioritize which collections I wanted to gather data from versus the amount of funding I had because initially if I was going to be really short on cash or if I had no funding whatsoever I was really going to have to trim down mm -hmm. which populations I was going to include in this study and like how I could really phrase these questions or what questions I could really ask with the data and so I was fortunate in that I could actually do everything I really wanted to with this project with the funding available. That's great. And so let's actually now talk about this work a little bit. And so you have a really great setup in your presentation. You kind of set things up within the terms of Bergman and Allen rules, which I'm sure a lot of people who listen to the show are familiar with, but maybe you could tell us real briefly, like a sentence each of what those are. And then that there have been some issues with, you know, work that has been done assessing Bergman and Allen rules, as well as just body shape and size from skeletal material and what it means. So tell us about Bergman and Allen, and then some of the problems with how studies revolving around those are. Basically, Bergman and Allen's rules are two really big rules for any type of climate adaptation or ecogeographic research. Bergman's rule basically boils down to individuals that are adapted or living in very cold environments tend to be wider bodied and larger than individuals living in warmer climates. And then this applies in the same way with Allen's rule, just to the appendages of the body. So if you are living in a really cold climate, you're gonna to tend to see individuals with shorter arms and legs in comparison to individuals living in warmer climates. So this is just kind of a trade-off in the ratio of surface area to volume and how the body tries to either dissipate or retain heat. And then in terms of past research that's been done, Basically, traditional studies have taken more of a correlation approach in that they're looking for trends in skeletal morphology that seem to correspond with changes in climate variables. So this would be changes in temperature, precipitation, humidity, and there's nothing wrong with this. this there's definitely a good lineup between various climate variables and latitude, but the problem is, is that it also kind of muddies the waters a little bit because we do know that populations that live closer together tend to look more like one another just because you know it's easier to interact with those individuals. You have gene flow, you can have a little bit of migration locally, but the further someone lives from you, the really more difficult it is for you to interact with them. And so it's possible that these differences that we're seeing that we're associating with climate could actually just be due to geographic distance and the genetic relatedness of particular populations. Uh, and so more recent research has been trying to kind of clear up this issue a little bit more 
by including population history in these particular types of analyses. And so this has been really beneficial in a lot of ways because it's confirmed a lot of these traditional associations, but it's also brought to light that some features that we have tended to associate with climate adaptation really aren't adaptive. They're just a result of that particular population's genetic history or their general location in comparison to other groups. And this is kind of further complicated in a way in that a lot of individuals doing these studies, whether traditionally or with more recent methods, tend to find one part of the body they really like and focus on that to do their research. So we have a lot of cranial research. We have a lot of postcranial research looking at the limbs or the pelvis, but we don't have a lot of studies that actually look at both of them. So we can't really say anything holistically about how the body changes as a result of these various climatic stresses. And so it's really helpful if we can actually start moving more into that holistic viewpoint for analysis. And it also would be really great if we can incorporate more females <laughs> into our studies, just because for a variety of reasons, a lot of studies tend to just focus on male morphology. And a lot of this just kind of boils down to what's available in the collections that you're visiting that you can access. Females are typically less represented in skeletal populations. So it makes sense that a lot of these research studies are using mostly male samples, but it kind of leaves us assuming that males and females are going to be affected by climate in the same way and in the same magnitude, which they might not. What specifically are your tests? What are you looking to test or build up? So right now I am testing the influence of the minimum temperature of the coldest month on skeletal morphology. And so to do this, I basically built four different models for every single one of the traits that I was comparing. And so I compared cranial traits, pelvic traits, limb traits, traits of the hands and feet. And basically each one, I had a temperature only model. So this trait, what's its association with minimum temperature? What about its association with sex? What about sex and temperature? And then what about the interaction between these? Could males and females be reacting in different ways? And to kind of go the additional step of not just having this association or this correlation type of test, I included genetic data for all of these samples. So I used data from the Pan-Asian SNP Consortium and the Human Genome Diversity Project database and basically matched living populations to act as proxy genetic populations for my skeletal data and use that to form a relationship matrix so that way I could help kind of screen out and account for the likelihood that yes, there is a trend in these particular traits, but it's due to the genetic relatedness or geography of these particular populations versus minimum temperature. And then just seeing how each of these models performed and a majority of the models <laughs> tended to work best with the sex and temperature model. About a third or so worked well with the interaction model, and then a small number worked with the sex dimorphism model. The temperature only model just really flopped. It didn't work well with any of them. So what do you mean by minimum temperature? It sounds like a sort of fallback food type of thing. Is minimum temperature important because that's like what you think is going to be effective or is that a control? What's well, a good intro type of variable to kind of compare just because a lot of research is focused on temperature changes. You'll see studies that do minimum temperature, maximum temperature, mean temperature, 
but it does seem like cold temperature, like the minimum temperature really has a strong impact on influencing morphology. And so I felt like that was the best place to start just because if you're going to try to find something, try to find something that's gonna have the strongest signal and then move on to things that maybe will have less of an impact or only impact certain parts of the body. So that's why future analyses, I'm hoping to focus more on like precipitation, humidity, mm. altitude, those types of things. So this is more of a pilot attack at the question. <laughs> and it's one of those things in that like minimum temperature, you can think of it as people have to survive this. And so they might be built in the best way to survive the worst condition. It would be a minimum temperature or again, precipitation, humidity, all these other things you can put in, but minimum temperature becomes one of those things that we think is associated with body phenotype, but we're not entirely sure because of this piecemeal putting together of a body and analysis. Anyway, so give us the broad strokes of what you found. You said that there's kind of this interaction going on with temperature and sex, and I know you found a difference between males and females. So what is that difference and what does it all mean? So give us the big take home of this work. Okay. Yeah, definitely. So in general, broad strokes, uh, if you just look at the traits themselves, they overall fit really well with what we see in other regions of the world in that in colder climates, we tend to see rounder crania, we have taller, narrower noses, individuals have broader body breaths, and we're seeing in terms of the brachial or curl index, so the difference between the distal elements of a limb versus the proximal elements of a limb, that we're having shorter distal elements in comparison to the proximal elements. So those all align quite well. When it comes to actually seeing what is under selection, there's some differences. <laughs> we are definitely seeing that in terms of cranial traits, predominantly selection is just affecting the breadth of the cranium, the vault itself, as well as the face. And then in terms of moving into everything below the head, we have a ton of selection acting on the body in terms of limb lengths, pelvic breath, as in by acetabular breath, which is traditionally taken for a lot of these ecogeographic studies, but also in the lower portion of the pelvis that is typically associated with sexual dimorphism analyses, looking at the bony birth canal, as well as by acetabular breath. And so that's really exciting to kind of see the difference between what's happening with selection on the head versus the body. And then kind of surprising to me, at least, there was no selection acting on the hands and feet. And based on Alan's rule, I was really expecting like, okay, so the further we're moving from the body, the shorter things probably should be because we're getting away from this like central heat source. And really any difference that existed between these populations, male or female, really just boiled down to population history. And mm. so selection's really not acting on those. So it looks like populations living in colder environments are having either really good cultural buffering. They're keeping that was going to be my feet, question. You know, <laughs> like nice and toasty warm because they know it's cold. They want to avoid the cold. I've also read some things too that have kind of theorized that any kind of limitations that are placed on selection on the feet have to do with locomotion and that we have to kind of preserve a certain size of our foot to make sure we can get around easily and safely. And so really the selection that can act on that is quite limited, but also obviously if you're living someplace cold, you're definitely going to be covering your feet. And then in terms of really additionally surprising information for me was that there was no selection acting on the nose. And that's been a huge portion of a lot of the- Are you going to make Scott Maddox cry? 
No, actually, <laughs> he, should, cry. <laughs> he, he should smile in a way because his paper supports my findings on looking at his morphological units of the nose in that while we do see a trend in noses becoming taller and narrower as we increase in latitude and moving towards colder temperatures, the traits themselves are not under selection. And so this is supported by Scott's research in that really the shape of the nasal aperture is just the shape of the overall hole to the nose. What's really important is actually what's inside. So our internal nasal fossa, because that's where we're getting all of this cool surface area interacting with the mucosa and the air to help humidify and warm everything before it gets into our lungs. And so that's something in the future, hoping to explore because I have all of those exciting measurements. But for the purposes of this study, there's already so many measurements to look at. So just really got to hone in on just a few things. So those are the main big takeaways in the general selection overall patterns. In terms of males versus females, it was surprising in that of the traits, about 50% had selection acting equally on males and females. But 30% of the traits actually had males exhibiting greater selective forces than females. And this was predominantly in the width of the face, so bizygomatic breadth, maximum cranial breadth, biauricular breadth. There were also some cranial traits like facial height that was being reduced as we move into warmer temperatures that only males were experiencing selection. Females had no selection whatsoever on facial height. And then in terms of the body itself, we're seeing more reduction of biiliac breath as we increase in temperature in males and a stronger selection towards the reduction of the legs in males than in females. So that was kind of an interesting thing to explore in terms of the difference in potential sensitivity to the environment and developmental stresses in these populations. There's a lot to unpack here. I'm not going to ask you to do it all right now because you have a whole career ahead of you to do that. What is next for you? Well, definitely exploring other climate variables with all of these linear measurements, like I said, looking at precipitation, humidity, altitude. I did collect shape data while I was researching. So the cranial and pelvic data is actually 3D landmarks that were gathered using a microscribe digitizer. So I was able to extract linear measurements, but it also gives me all of this rich shape analyses that I can perform. So I want to also see how shape is being impacted by climatic forces and to further explore sexual dimorphism in these populations and within the region. Most of the future research within the next year or so is probably going to focus on those questions. Yeah, you have a lot to unpack and it seems like so, so much data that you were able to begin like right <laughs> at the end of the buzzer kind of thing, which is amazing. Uh, and so like we, we had mentioned that you're nearing the end of your PhD and Libby has nothing but wonderful things to say about you because we talk all <laughs> and she thinks the world of you. Is there anything you'd like to advertise or promote? Yeah, definitely. So with that, with all of that rich data that was gathered over 14 months, I have skeletal data from seven different countries with over 950 individuals. And so it's a really large data set. As far as I'm aware of, it's the largest Asian skeletal data set for all of these populations cranially and postcranially. So it is quite comprehensive. Like I said, I 
collected data using a microscribe digitizer. So there's the possibility of shape analyses as well as linear analyses with the cranium and the pelvis. These encompass standard cranial measurements as well as house measurements. I also basically took a whole bunch of postcranial measurements, left and right sides. So there's a total of at least 100 postcranial measurements in this data set as well. So I'm really excited to apply a whole bunch of different questions in terms of adaptation to these particular individuals, but I also am really excited about exploring new questions and collaborating with other individuals. So I am happy to explore further questions with other individuals if they think they have good questions for this data. And that sounds like a lot of fun, but what else do you do for fun? Yeah, when I'm not focusing on research or anthropology in general, I definitely love movies. So Netflix has been my friend lately with the pandemic, and I've been kind of unwinding in the evening by doing some knitting, doing some sketching. Lately, I've gotten into some digital artwork, so that's been a lot of fun. Mainly just doing kind of artsy, craftsy things around the house. What was your favorite food from all your travels? Mm, that is a good question. I would have to say there was a really good food in Mongolia where it was like a stone soup where they use a stone to help heat the soup. And it's kind of like a barley and other types of vegetable type of stew. It's really great. I think there was a book as a little kid called mm -hmm. Soup. Yeah. yeah, no, like I remember in grade school, we read the book and then like the teacher, we all made stone soup for in class. Anyway, Elizabeth, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. It was really great to talk to both of you and super excited about this in general. Yeah.